Welcome to the Social Behavioral Coffee Hour, the Center for Social and Behavioral Science podcast series at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Our goal is to provide a platform for guests to discuss and explore themselves, their disciplines, and the broader context in which they research, work, and live. This includes the good and the bad, and the beautiful and the messy. We aim to discuss human nature and how to build a better world using behavioral science. And if we can, we'd like to have a little fun along the way. The following is a conversation with Dr. Catherine Fairbairn, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Illinois, and recently named Rising Star by the Association for Psychological Science. In this episode, Catherine tells the unique and fascinating journey that she had into the understanding of addiction through research. Her and I discuss the surprising cultural, social, and emotional reasons for why people drink alcohol, and at the same time, debunk some common drinking misconceptions. We'll also talk about alcohol's social impact at large and how societies can reimagine their relationship with drinking. All right. Catherine Fairbairn, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here with you. So Catherine, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got started in the area of research that you do, um, which specifically looks at um, alcohol, but I'll let you describe it a little bit more in people's alcohol consumption behaviors. Yeah, so I, it's been a little bit of a long journey, but um, I um, look at um, addiction and alcohol use and um, some of the reasons that people might uh, get to that place, why they might be consuming more alcohol or other substances than they want to. And a particular focus in my work has been um, social spaces and particularly kind of social cohesion and social bonding related motives for drinking. So that's kind of briefly in a nutshell what I study in terms of the origin story of how I got here. Um, I used to, in a former life, be a, um, a, I'd call myself a mediocre opera singer. Um, and I, I, went, I went to New York City, which is a great place for your um, dreams to die if you're uh, <laughs> uh, interested in music, because there are so many, no matter, you know, even if you're a good, a good singer, um, there are so many utterly unemployed singers who are better than you. Um, so um, it, it, it was a humbling and wonderful experience to be in New York City because I got to hear all the amazing voices and musicians and kind of black, bask in that glory. Um, and, and how old were you at the time? I was, well, when I went to uh, New York City, I was 18. So I went to- Wow. Um, yep. So you were really living the big city dream there. Oh yeah, I was young, young and full of full of dreams. Yep. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I, um, I, I was, I came from a pretty musical and artistic family. My family is made up of writers and poets and musicians and just generally kind of, um, you know, nobody has a lot of money, but there's a lot of um, passion. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I somewhere in the middle of my college career, I was trying to decide uh, where I wanted to go with my life. Um, and I took, was taking a bunch of music classes. I was thinking about, you know, maybe I would be an opera singer. Maybe I'd be a vocal coach because even then I was getting the sense, like maybe, maybe this is, a um, going to be tough. Um, I was thinking maybe a music professor. I didn't know. Um, but, um, at the end of the day, I, 
I started taking some psychology classes at that point. And um, I, I love the people who put out beauty into the world with their voices and their words. Um, but I began to feel that my calling was, I felt particularly pulled to um, help people who were suffering and um, particularly people who uh, other people don't view as worthy of of our of our compassion and our support. Wow, was there something in particular that's that's really beautiful? Thank you for for sharing that with me. Was there anything that really pulled you towards um, alcohol and addiction in particular? I would say that kind of equation. You know, there's there's many. Um, domains of clinical psychology, of well-being, of like you, you know, human suffering in human life that's very worthy of study. Um, I ended up kind of looking around at my, you know, looking around at what I saw in the world at that moment um, and um, also looking around at sort of the folks around me and feeling um, that we didn't, that, that addiction in particular was an area where just there is tremendous suffering. Um, you know, people who, if you if you encounter somebody who's really in the struggling with addiction, um, you you know you absolutely can lose everything. You your your job, your family, your values, your sense of self, um, everything. Um, sometimes your your freedom. Um, and um, I. I felt there was so, I mean, you know, if you look at this on societal metrics, it's, you know, the, the quote unquote cost to society posed by addictions in general is just monstrous. Um, so I felt that this was an area where there was so much suffering, so much need, but also it was an area where it was it, it represented kind of an empathic challenge for people. And as a result, we didn't have as many people going into that area. I think there's this view, like it is the person's fault somehow. Interesting. Interesting. And when you think about, um, you know, this is an area, like were there particular things that I, I can't, I can only imagine that like being in New York city must've been so formative for, for those kinds of interests Were there, like particular like experiences that that you like had or individuals who you knew who kind of like really calcified this as an interest for you or was it kind of something that you thought about uh like on a, a broader scale well um i guess there was a, you know there was a, a bunch of experiences um some of which are you know i i come from a family of musicians so that probably tells you a little bit about um personal experiences um <laughs> Uh, and, um, so that was certainly one piece that was kind of salient in my, in my personal life. Um, but also, um, I, I, in the summer before my senior year of, uh, college, I worked at, um, at a hospital at Roosevelt Island and I, um, led, um, groups, among other things, I led groups for folks who um, were HIV positive, um, wow. sometimes were quite ill and also struggled with addiction. Um, and I, first of all, it gave me an experience of just the tremendous suffering that could, could accrue from alcohol and drug use. But it also gave me a 
a real tremendous appreciation of the context that surrounded that, of what often, it gave me, I, I felt like I understood why in certain ways that this was not, you know, a disorder of a, of a careless person or a selfish person um, or even a deviant person. This was a disorder of, you know, of, well, of a lot of different types of people, of humans in so many ways and, and in a certain way of context that these were folks who just struggled and suffered in their lives and had not been handed much. Right. Wow. And then I, I really um, thank you for sharing that again. Wow. I always love to drill down a little bit more when I can um, and, and ask folks, uh, you know, as they're going about their journeys and having these experiences that shape their interests as professionals and as researchers, was there like a, an aha moment for you where it, uh, folks who listen to the podcast probably are familiar with me asking this question by now, but I love to ask it so much. Um, was there an aha moment for you where it just, you can remember the place and where you were and the people who you were with and what you were doing when it like really kind of stuck with you. Like, I need to do this. Like I need to focus my, my efforts and, and work on this problem. Well, I remember that there was, um, there was a little bit of a, um, a juxtaposition in two experiences that I think ended up being for, uh, formative for me. Um, and, so and if you don't want to, if you don't want to share, if, if something is obviously too yeah. um, personal, feel free to, 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 you know, not share, but if you would, uh, I would love to, to hear Let's these. try it out. Okay. I'm trying to find if I can share one of these stories without insulting a whole discipline. So we're going to see how it comes <laughs> out, <laughs> but it was formative. Um, but, um, so during my junior year of college, I was deciding whether or not I wanted to be either in the world of music or a musician. Um, and I remember um, I took a class um, where at least it was it was a Beethoven class, uh, mm. a class at, at Columbia that was focused on the works of Beethoven. And I love Beethoven. Mm. Um, but I also, I have a view, I, 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 I don't believe Western classical canon is the only um, great music or that it was ordained, you know, that it, that is ordained with anything special compared to any other type of cultural tradition. Right. Um, and I remember at least in this part, I remember a portion of this class we spent discussing um a particular piano concerto of Beethoven. And there's an opening segment that I think lasts two minutes. Um, and we spent a good deal of a class period discussing whether or not this opening segment represented the entire myth of Orpheus or only the portion of the myth where he defeats the Furies. Huh. Um, and this, this, um, struck me as I, I was glad there were people out there doing this in the world because I think these these works are beautiful and deep and worthy of analysis. Mm. Um, but it was very clear to me um, in that moment that that like, if we're talking about something I might do 40, 50, 60 hours a week, um, that I wasn't the person who was suited to doing that thing. And around that same time, I um, began um, leading groups at Roosevelt Island um, 
And I remember, I mean, I remember a mixture of reactions to those groups. I remember there, there was a, a whole bunch of different characters in there, some of whom were you know, more or less easy, easy in terms of their relations to me and to each other. Well, here I can, um, I, you know, I actually believe that the notion that there is a single aha moment is a myth and that our careers emerge in a series <laughs> of little aha moments. So I agree I can, with that. I can certainly share um, some, you know, some others of mine, um, including, uh, do, you, do you want to start your question again? Would that be helpful or should nah. I just keep going? Let's just go. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think among, I, I had a number of different uh, moments that I think collectively came together and brought me on this path. Um, I think one of them um, did surround how I, um, some early learning I did about um, actually neuroscientific theories of addiction. Um, and um, in particular, there is a, there is, there's a number of these, many of which are very elegant, but um, one of which is called um, homeostatic dysregulation. Um, mm -hmm. And it was originally proposed by the person who's now the director of NIAAA. Um, but and, and, it NIAAA is... Oh, I apologize. It's the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, although they are undergoing a name change right now. But officially so we'll, we'll get a new acronym soon <laughs> yeah oh you know what i'm not sure about the acronym possibly they'll try to keep it the same but um they are currently the national institute on alcohol abuse and alcoholism um so um the director of this institute um created this theory called homeostatic dysregulation um and it is um this notion that early on in drug taking um, basic, I'm, I'm going to explain this in very non-neuroscientific terms, Please. Um, but, <laughs> but basically um, that early on in drug taking, um, one would take uh, drugs or drink as a way to go from a neutral to a positive state. Mm. Um, but then slowly over time, um, consistent exposure to alcohol uh, actually changes your set your set point changes your it's this is why it's called homeostatic dysregulation it um, alters your baseline mood slowly over time so that you need to um, take alcohol or drugs um, as a way to even feel normal. Um, wow. So in so near the beginning of drug taking, you might go from positive from neutral to positive, you might get that high. Um, whereas later in drug taking, um, you might go from feeling stressed out and sad. Um, basically, you've, um, you have uh, overstimulated the dopamine receptors in your brain to, de to describe it in extremely simplistic uh, terms. Um, those have thinned out. And now your, uh, your actual set point for mood is lower. Um, and that and, and it, it, it's a theory that explains a number of things, including, I think, you know, when you explain that to folks who've themselves struggled with addiction, I think a lot of people uh, can see their own progression that right. at the beginning it was about getting high and now it's just about even feeling human. Mm. Um, and there is a neuroscientific explanation for that. Um, but also one of 
one part of the theory that is that is a little harder, but it also explains a lot for folks struggling with addiction is the change in set point is um, fairly, fairly uh, not not entirely permanent, but fairly permanent. Um, wow. So you, yeah, that's sad. And it, and it, it, I mean, for my personal journey, this was, um, this felt very, um, it felt very real. It felt very real in terms of the people I was talking to, in terms of the addicts I was talking to. It had this kind of elegant neuroscientific grounding. Um, right. It just explained a lot. Um, and it felt like this exciting new field that um, where these elegant theories existed. Wow. That's, that's such a cool, um, that's, that's must be such a cool thing to get to, to learn and, and, and experience. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea that the set point changes like somewhat permanently, or is it like in some people it's permanent and, but can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, two people are never the same. So, right, you know, right. if you, if you take um, drugs consistently at one point in your life and you develop a dependence, you are not necessarily doomed to feel sad the rest of your life. Um, right. However, if it, if the drug use is severe, um, then it can be fairly permanent. And, and although you might make it up, you will probably make it up closer to normal. Um, your mood, your, your, your internal subjective state may never feel exactly what it felt like pre-drug. Wow. Which is important, which sounds depressing. <laughs> um, and, and I think it is a sadness, you know, um, yeah. number one, this is really for chronic overuse. It's, you know, um, it's not for, for lighter dabblers or for briefer dabblers. So you're not going to destroy your life because of, you know, one weekend in Vegas or even six months right. of bad decisions. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind because I think folks in recovery tell us, and we hear that it, it, they continue to struggle like this. Con it, it is not a, a day, day long battle or a week long battle. It is a lifelong choice, a lifelong decision. And something that, that needs support, needs celebration, um, at a, at a 20 years out. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Uh, thank you. Um, I, one of the reasons I was really excited to talk with you today is because I felt like this would be a really cool opportunity to kind of pause and do some deliberate reflection on my own kind of drinking behavior <laughs> behaviors. Um, and, you know, not, not to say that they're necessarily problematic, but just in terms of, you know, culturally, like, like you were saying, um, there is sort of a, a socialization and a cohesion to, to, alcohol consumption. And I, I'm really excited to kind of unpack some of those with you today. Um, it also, I think is particularly interesting for me because I, I came from a household that did not have the healthiest relationship, uh, with alcohol, um, not even being artists, <laughs> but, um, so well, I'm, musicians I'm, don't have a monopoly on this, so <laughs> that I've I've seen that firsthand. <laughs> um, but I wanted to to kind of ask you a little bit more about like, um, you know, you say that for example, um, your work takes a view that people do what they do for a reason. It's not a great reason, um, but it's not random. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like, what is what is it that people get? when they, when they drink and, and how do we develop these kind of social 
uh, rituals around alcohol consumption? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that is something that we've kind of delved into our work. Um, so, um, you know, I think there is, there can kind of be this idea about addiction that it is, um, uh, that it is frightening and um, illogical and irrational and, um, and almost like a, almost like a kind of contagion, an, an inhuman contagion, an infection of the human mind that makes us behave inhumanely. Mm. And now certainly <laughs> there's, there are elements to addictive behaviors that are very irrational and can be inhumane for sure. Um, however, I guess my work, as you pointed out, um, takes the view that at least um, in the earlier stages and in a developmental view um, that we can take a rational approach to understanding addiction and that it is humans who take drugs and humans who choose to take drugs and sometimes and maybe even often in the earlier stages they take them for a reason mm. um, and if we can understand those reasons then we can ultimately build smarter prevention measures and even smarter treatment measures um, so um, so the there's a lot of you know, a lot of amazing addiction researchers have have been in this area of addressing this question of, of why do people drink? Mm -hmm. um, the area that I have kind of been particularly fascinated by is this area of, of the social motive. Right. And yeah, well, would you like to address your budding drinking problem or would you like to... Uh, <laughs> Get I never into said the that. Social motives, or do them in sequence. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the the social motives and about the cohesion that comes with it. I, I think that you know most people have been, I, I'm, almost everyone has probably been in a situation where it's the kind of social thing to do, and everyone you know does this thing. Um, and I, I wonder about like all of the. Um, the different kind of rituals that we have around drinking and around the, the socialization practices we have around drinking. And I, I'm curious about your thoughts on those. It's yeah, it is a really interesting realm. Um, so there has been this idea that um, in, in, I think the, the public imagination as well as in our, our scientific discourse that um Addiction is a disorder of the solitary individual. Mm. When, if you kind of close your eyes for a moment and bring to your mind, like what, what does a real drug, drug addict look like? What does a real alcoholic look like? Right. In terms of that second question, you would probably be picturing in your mind that old, you know, that, that lonely old guy reaching for that glass of single malt, right? Right. Or, or someone kind of locked in a room by themselves and the blinds are, are down and the TV is on and it's kind of a blurry haze. Oh yeah. No. I mean, if he's got company, they're definitely on the TV. <laughs> um, so this is, you know, that's very common and certainly there's elements to addiction that can be isolating in certain cases. Um, however, when you picture that you are actually picturing the minority 
of heavy drinkers and even individuals with disordered drinking patterns. Hmm. Most, the vast, so, so the most um, common age group in which to have a serious drinking problem is um, in your 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, these folks are generally drinking with other people. So there's this, you know, this idea, I think there's like two kind of related misconceptions out there. One is that social drinking is non-problem drinking. You know, if you go to your doctor and your doctor's like, hey, you know, um, you know, do you drink? You're like, oh, well, I'm a social drinker. Right, right. It's almost it's almost like you're you you give them real information in by saying you're a social drinker. Um, And secondly, I think there's this assumption that like social motives are not powerful motives in humans. They like it's like they're coming from they're extrinsic. They're not intrinsic. They're imposed on us from without. And as a result of that kind of extrinsic element to them, that, of course, they couldn't like bubble up in such a way as to drive this like crazy addiction that we see. Right, right. So I think those are the two common uh, conceptions out there. And um, with respect to this idea of social drinking as non as that social drinking is non-problem drinking. Um, most people drink in social context. Most problem drinkers drink in social context. Alcoholics tend to drink without other alcoholics. Um, social settings are where, you know, if, if everybody drank alone in their living room, there wouldn't be problems with driving while intoxicated. Um, we wouldn't have bar fights and also extreme binge drinking. Um, does mainly tend to be a social phenomenon. Um, And then I guess in terms of this question of the powerfulness of social motives, um, that that is one I find to be a particular head scratcher in that I, I, I haven't seen, you know, love, love, attraction, the need to belong, the need to find, feel like you, you know, you, you're around people who understand you, who accept you. Um, there, there aren't too many, there are human motives that are more powerful than those, but, but not too many. Um, so, so I think alcohol can really serve as a social cohesive, um, have, have a social cohesive function for people. And in some cases that can feel really heady and really rewarding. And in some Mm. cases lead people to consume more than they wanted. Interesting. So the social is there a there's a strong social motive you're saying to this i wonder for folks who fall down you know into these they fall into these problematic kind of behavioral patterns what's uh, you know what's the or or one of the the kernels you think underlying those kinds of downward trajectories um do you mean in terms of um so for folks who uh who might be um motivated to drink for social reasons and go on to have a problem? Uh, Or people who just go on to have a problem generally. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, there can be many reasons and, um, and certainly not all of them are social, but I think um, there can be some pretty, pretty powerful social ones. Um, So alcohol, um, alcohol, I, I, I hate to spread this as almost as a public health method, but in terms of alcohol mood enhancement, mm. you get more alcohol mood enhancement in social context when you drink with others mm. versus if you drink alone. 
And actually, if you drink alone, you don't consistently feel better. Hmm. Um, so if we're talking about people doing things that are reinforcing and make them feel better then social drinking, first of all, people feel better when they drink in social settings versus when they drink alone. They also consistently drink more when they're in social settings than, than when they're alone. There's a lot of different potential reasons people have sort of thrown out why this might be the case. Um, but I think, you know, in some cases, there's kind of some mental sludge that can get in our way when we're trying to form connections with other people. Mm. Um, maybe it's concerns about ourselves in some cases. In some cases, it might be concerns about them. Um, but I think um, we we can tend, as, as humans, we can tend to overthink it. Right. And um, alcohol can release that kind of... Um, uh, release us from that kind of haze that can come with that kind of over monitoring and help us form a connection with the person in front of us. Right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and certainly, uh, prone to overthink things myself. Uh, so can certainly relate to that. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering a little bit more about, um, how you see, uh, the United States culture, or maybe like cultural differences even. I think it would be interesting to maybe open it up a little bit and think about, um, is the United States culture around alcohol consumption healthy? Is it very different from a lot of other cultures? Yeah, um, so I would say the United States culture is, a drinking culture is, um, is an interesting one. Um, in that we have um, had periods, uh, we, we, in some segments of our culture, we really celebrate and um, facilitate alcohol consumption. Um, in other segments of our culture, it is wholly prohibited. Mm -hmm. And this isn't only within a cross section of time, it's also, we've observed it as waves across history. So of course there was prohibition. There was the reaction to prohibition. Um, there's, you know, there's, I think simultaneously in this culture, this kind of um, almost worship of, of alcohol and what it can do. And I think, especially as that's associated with masculinity. Um, and then at the same time, there is this fear of alcohol and so I think those kind of raging extremes, I, I don't think they're like the, the U.S. is the only country that that might have such a, a divide, um, but it is it is notable, um, whereas and you might compare that to some other cultures like, you know, if you think of the stereotypical Mediterranean culture where alcohol is normalized, where it's right. integrated into meals, um, where it's part of a yeah, family kind of occasion. Right. Because that's kind of my um, you know, naive take. I, I've, I've done a little bit of international travel. I've noticed that they, they, send, they seem to be a little bit less neurotic about, and I could be totally wrong about this. I'd love to be checked by an expert, but it seems like America has a, a sort of strange fascination with drinking. That's a very double-edged sword. And I, I don't see like you described it as being a polarizing thing. I don't see it as being as, as polarized. I don't see as much of the good or as much of the bad uh, in its consumption in some other countries. Is there, am I totally off in this or do you think there's some validity to that observation? No, I mean, I, I will say, 
I do think there's, I think there's some cultures where maybe it says as extreme or more extreme on one end or the other, but it's true that, yeah, that um, I guess America is notable for being, or the United States is notable for being a melting pot in a variety of ways. Um, we uh, unite wholly different um different peoples, different cultures within a, a single country. And I would say, yeah, although other countries might have like more extreme forms of prohibition combined with some level of drinking culture and other cultures might have more extreme levels of excessive drinking combined with less prohibition. I do think um, the United States may be one of the more extreme versions where, of uh, where we have both ends pulling. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some of the, the other misconceptions, um, do you think kind of cultural beliefs we have about alcohol, um, that are actually not true? I, I think about this because I think going and, and traveling, you know, internationally makes you see things from a whole new perspective and it makes you like really question, oh, why do we do it this way? And I'd always assumed it was like this, but maybe I'm actually wrong about that. Are there, are there other big misconceptions out there you think lurking and, and how, you know, the United States in particular um, deals with, with alcohol? Well, I think um, in terms of how the United States deals with alcohol. And that could be like at a, at a macro level, like how the, you know, our, our institutions and our policies work, or, or maybe even at an individual, like kind of people's popular beliefs. Well, I do think um, we take an individual approach to understanding addiction. Hmm. And I, I don't think that's wrong. I, I want to be clear. I think there's, you know, people determine their own fates and society determines their fates. So it is half the equation. But I don't think we do enough with our spaces and with our kind of, um, with our culture, with our climate, with system level um, elements you know, um, even, you know, trying to create alcohol-free alternative spaces. And this is not easy, by the way. I'm not suggesting right. that what I'm, what I'm putting forward, if only they could snap their fingers and do it. Right. Um, but, you know, um, really thinking about um, not just whether liquor was allowed, but where it is allowed, um, in what quantities, also thinking about other alternative spaces that are alcohol free. And I think even if we just think within like, you know, United States is tough because it's huge and some parts of it are much more regulated and or funded than others. But even if we just think about our college campus, um, you know, what's what's really fun here that we provide people um, that might be an alcohol free space. Right. And maybe for a college student, there is no fun without alcohol. I, <laughs> I, I don't personally believe that, but you right. know, I, 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 I'm sympathetic, you know, bar is high maybe for thrills, but, um, but um, I, I do think there isn't enough exploration of like, not just how do we create individuals who make the right decisions, but how do we make contexts that allow mm. them and help them make those right decisions? I think that's a super powerful lens uh, for viewing the problem. How do we put you know, how do we design contexts and situations that allow people to make decisions that just are better for them, are healthier for them? Okay. I'm wondering, um, I, I would love to talk a little bit more about this. So um, in, uh, so obviously, uh, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign is a kind of smaller city in the Midwest. 
Um, and we can be frank, there is uh, a lot of drinking in the area. Um, I've, I've heard many people say, you know, it's one of the only things to do. Um, there are lots of places where you can engage in activities. Um, and I, I just know, and this is probably not, you know, specific to the Midwest. It's certainly not specific to Champaign-Urbana, but there are lots of social things that you can do and they all involve alcohol. Um, so there are lots of, for example, uh, I was in a dart league in, in Champaign-Urbana for a couple of semesters, nice. and there aren't like places you can go for the league that are not in bars. Uh, the same with pool. Um, so you can play darts, you can play pool. Um, there are some folks who do trivia. Um, people, I know people who love to play trivia. Um, all of these things happen to be in bars. Um, there's also skee-ball. There's a ski ball league. It's a, it's a smaller league, but um, there are folks who I know who play in the ski ball league and those are all in bars as well. Um, These I, are great what, examples. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you take a look back and you think, my gosh, like everything we do here, not everything, obviously, but a lot of the stuff that we do socially it tends to involve drinking. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious, are there other good examples of, of um, spaces that we can cultivate as, you know, examples of, of things that we can do um, maybe like other regions or maybe other countries do this a lot better in terms of creating those really cool social spaces where you don't have to drink or maybe there's not even a need to do so. Yes. Are there good examples of those you think? Well, I would say um, the not on a large scale that mm -hmm. I know of, um, which is not to say those do not exist, um, but um, not on a large scale, not enough. And I would say that the groups that tend to do these exceptionally well, or at least be making the biggest strides are groups like NA and AA. Hmm. Okay. But it is a shame that we kind of have to leave it as a society, first of all, until some of our, you know, some of our, our children or some of our citizens become so desperate that they have to, you know, uh, change their entire lives in order to, um, in order to, to not suffer. Um, so it's, it's sad as a society, we leave it that long, but I would say those are the spaces where that work is really being done. So like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if you're in a good, um, district for AA or NA meetings, you might have, there's like, you know, a yearly, um, sober prom, there's, um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a sober camping trip, sober Halloween, there's like DJ nights, there's laser tag, you know, all this stuff, these yeah. events that are very social um, and are somewhat thrilling um, that mm. do not involve alcohol. It's really I, interesting that you meant, oh, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, well, I, I think, I think it's going to, with the college students, especially like this is going to be a tough audience. I'm not saying we can just like put together some crafts on a table and they're going to show up and think it's a good idea. Like this is really a challenge. Macaroni um, necklaces or something. Yeah. And I think exactly. Um, I think that um, we're probably like, if we did this, it would be like, it would be a financial decision. Like there would have mm. to be finances going into this. It would be an investment. Um mm. Uh, because I think there would be some core ingredients. I think one would have to be a sense of novelty and excitement. Mm. So I actually think some of the things you mentioned, you know, like, like darts, ski ball, like um, even, I don't know, for folks who don't struggle with, with gambling, you know, maybe, maybe some games of chance, like um, uh, laser tag, um, paintball, like something that has, has a, 
an edge of danger and novelty and excitement and probably physicality to it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, probably would, I think those are elements that alcohol supplies. Right. Um, And then I think it would also, I think another function that alcohol serves is in kind of structure, helping us through the initial, some of the more awkward stages of socializing and social interaction where we're first getting to know people, where we're kind of reaching out and creating those new social bonds. And I think those those moments can be like really um, intoxicating. Now, I'm not talking about alcohol from alcohol, but they can be emotionally intoxicating when we kind of reach out and feel we've really created a new connection with somebody. And alcohol can facilitate that kind of value, what can make that happen for us. Um, And I... I think there has to be, and I, I think it does that in a few different ways. Um, one is through probably making us feel um, a little aroused, um, but another is in dampening our sense of of a, a little bit of anxiety in those cases. Mm-hmm. And so, there are ways, there are drug free ways to do that um, through things like structured, enjoyable social engagement, that sort of thing. But it just, you know, it takes work and planning, and and some of it will fall flat. Yeah, I I love the way that you think about this in terms of it, you know, it kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier that, you know, uh, it's a lot about, you know, the social cohesion, like people drink. And if you were to really like unpack, you know, why people are are doing it. And yes, there's, there's mood enhancement, but there's a lot of social motivation to it too. And they want to be in these really intoxicating, um, but without alcohol, um, the, the social kind of intoxication that you get when you form a new connection with someone, or you get to have uh, a conversation with them. That's kind of like very authentic and honest and and real. Um, those are very, very heady things. Um, and I, I love the idea of, of thinking about ways that you can do that maybe without alcohol, you know, a, an actual poison <laughs> as, yes. a, as a facilitator. Yes. Um, I wonder too about, you know, what percent of, I, I know we can't really quantify something like this, but there's all, do you think there's something to be said too about the way in which we kind of have just fallen into these patterns as a society through like inertia? It's like, well, we already have a system that works. It's called drinking and you just go to a space and everybody drinks. Um, and it's going to, you know, you'll, you'll socialize that way. And we don't need to come up with the, the interesting spaces. I wonder if you think there's something to be said about, um, people think that others want to drink. And those people think that others also want to yes. drink, but maybe everybody doesn't want to drink as much as they yes. think others think they do. <laughs> yeah, it is, you know, that it, it is a huge individual difference variable. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, it, it's a kind of interesting element. Um, so I, I think, you know, to be clear, I think some people really want to drink. Um, regardless of whether they're an alcoholic or not, but some people truly don't. And, and, um, you know, I'll give the example. So, um, my husband falls into, in certain ways into your idea of someone who should, you know, be a person who drinks more. He's, um, you know, real big guy. He's very sporty. He's got lots of friends. He, he like, he, he, he's tried, um, he just does not enjoy it. 
Um, he, he doesn't, it doesn't do much for him in the moment. He, he enjoys the taste of beer. Um, he doesn't enjoy what it does for him in the moment. And he definitely doesn't enjoy, um, what it does for him later. Mm-hmm. So, um, whereas I will say, you know, speaking for, for myself from a family of alcoholics, I've never had a problem of, um, enjoying, you know, enjoying the drink, which has been, uh, first of all, it, it has meant I've had very deliberately have a moderate drinking lifestyle. And that's something I choose. And, um, and I restrict myself. And that's been a growing, an, uh, a, I wouldn't say it's been a growing path, because I, I don't think it was ever out of control. But it was, it was very useful to me. Um, and I, and it also can give me some insight into why the folks that I study might, might struggle. But to your point, I think there's a great diversity in among people among about how much they actually want to drink and how much they really get out of that. And I think sometimes we're led, maybe, maybe we're led by some proportion of the population and not the other. Mm. I also wonder about, um, I also wonder if there's if there's something that individuals can do, um, if there's something individuals can do to kind of make deliberate steps towards. Let's say if you're somebody who drinks, and you're thinking I'd like to reduce my drinking a little bit. Now, obviously, people get a lot from drinking if they're somebody who probably drinks a lot. Whether that's you know in the end healthy or, or good for them is, is a different question. But in the moment, I think we can agree that they're doing it because they're getting something out of it. Um, for individuals who, you know, maybe want to reduce their, their drinking behavior or would like to evaluate their, their drinking behavior. Actually, let's talk about evaluation in just a second. But for people who kind of know, um, you know, that they would like to reduce their, their drinking behavior, what are some, some steps that they can take to try to, I think, fill that that motivation that they have to want to have that kind of that social cohesion that that also like you said is there's kind of a thrill to it it needs to be kind of thrilling are there things that people can do to and i don't know if i'm like way off in this but maybe it has something to do with with being bolder or, or being like more honest or more real and those are not easy things to do i struggle with those i think i think we all kind of do um, but is it, am I off to say, you know, that maybe there's some, something people can do there? Um, do you mean in terms of, um, in terms of managing or communicating within their social networks or their social spaces to kind yeah. of help them? Yeah. Is there like a, a kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, do it yourself, social thrilling replacement for drinking alcohol? Ah, yeah, that is interesting. Um, okay. I would say in terms of the, the, the thrill of it, um, I mean, there are plenty of replacements that would provide you with a thrill, but none of them are, you know, you would get addicted to those too. Um, so, you know, cocaine definitely helps. (laughs) Um, I'm joking. But, 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 but I mean, like socially speaking, right? Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, um, I would say there is no, in terms of socially moderating your drinking, there are some tried and true things you have to do um, that would be useful for somebody trying to cut down, which, okay, which, um, so um, in terms of, 
communicate very clearly with the people you're hanging out with what your goals are. So none of this like, um, oh, no, I, I'm, I don't need another one tonight. Um, or, you know, I'm a little full right now. Um, if you're hanging out with people and you're trying to cut down and you're drinking, you tell them like, hey, I was drinking a little more than I wanted to. Um, I, I actually had some negative effects. I wasn't feeling I wasn't feeling like my full self. I was real tired all the time or I right. just didn't feel right. Um, right. And I'm really trying to cut down now. And that feels awkward for many people to say right. to their friends. Right. If you can't be that honest, I'm not saying that your friendship isn't real. If you can't be that honest, there's lots of different kinds of friendships, but um, I would say if you can't, if you can't be honest, you are unlikely to succeed. Mm. If so, you can't be honest, you are unlikely to succeed. I think that's a great mantra for a lot of human social life, but please continue. Yes. So if you, you know, like there's, there's, there's many ways people try to not communicate directly because it feels uncomfortable. Right. Um, but all of these reasons um, tend to ultimately either, either they're assumed to be temporary um, or they're not strong enough for the person you're communicating with. Um, so really the, if you are serious about wanting to cut down in your drinking, I, I hope, um, and I'm not referring just to you, I'm referring to all, all <laughs> of people, course. Um, then being honest, like, oh yeah, I, I, I'm really trying to cut back. I'm really trying to have one a night. So, so that is, uh, you, you need to be clear in communicating and you need to communicate with all the people you hang out with regularly, not just like a couple of the people you feel comfortable with, like all the people. Mm. And you see, when you talk about bravery, I know you were referring to something else, but you see this, like in the folks who have really struggled with addiction and gone through it, you see that tremendous bravery in them yeah. that they are, that they, they'll just, I'll say, I know many people personally who I, I just, I'm in awe. They will immediately, you know, even on short acquaintance, they say, I'm a recovering addict. Um, don't bring that alcohol near me. Um, and uh, that they, they, those are the folks who remain sober. Um, so, and, and, you know, of course there's different versions of this, right? You don't have right. to say, you know, be an AA or NA or want to be absent for life. You can just be cutting down and say, oh, you know, I'm trying to cut down, but, um, okay. So that's one piece I would say in another important piece may be, and this is really hard, but it may be, um, to change the people you hang out with. Mm. Um, and that is maybe if option a is not working, but if you're really trying to cut down and you're going out every night with a whole bunch of people who are just going off the rails, that is almost impossible. Right. Um, right. so I would say, you know, if you're, if the idea is to put yourself in context where you can succeed, um, then putting yourself in context with, uh, people who are, um, drinking at levels, you don't feel comfortable with is, um, it's, it's just a, it's a challenge that most humans are not capable of, of, of living up to. Um, so I would say those are two so, tried and true social pieces, which I offer as broad, um, sort of thoughts, but I do think, um, you know, sometimes people, uh, who are trying to cut down, maybe they'll schedule daytime activities with their friends. Um, mm. if, if they're, for, for example, if they don't want to get caught in an awkward position, um, maybe they schedule like going out for, if they, if they're physically able, maybe like sporty activities, you can get a little bit of that thrill. 
uh, maybe going to see, I, I know some of my friends who are um, recovering addicts, um, some of them love horror movies. Um, you know, you get a little, you know, I, I, I personally am terrified by horror movies, but, um, <laughs> so, but there's lots of ways to get a thrill. You know, some of them love roller coasters. Um, right. there's ways to get a thrill with your friends and have a good time, um, using daytime activities. Right. I love that. Is there something to be said for and I keep going back to this. I don't know why. Is there something to be said for the type of communication that you have with the people that uh, that you're with? Um, I, I think so much. You know, I keep coming back to to your previous um, you know thoughts about hey, this is about kind of you know forming those kind of you know big connection or having those kind of moments with other people that really make you feel kind of invigorated. And alcohol is simply a conduit, you know, in part for for that. Uh, and I wonder if there's not other kind of like, um, kind of uh, conversational strategy. Like you can maybe there's a way to have you know better conversations with people so that they feel like they're being more invigorated in conversation. So we're not talking about the weather and how it was. And there's always you know utility in being able to talk to people about the weather. But I wonder if there's something to be said about you know being you know taking small steps to be bolder with who you are. And communicating that with other people so that you can have more invigorating conversations in a way that's totally sober. I like that idea. So um, there's what you're saying. I think some, sometimes as humans, there's a little thrill we get from risk taking mm -hmm. um, from something that feels like it could, you know, feels like it could be dangerous. And somehow when, when that, you know, we, we get that like a sense of excitement and there's, you know, if you're again, yeah, if you're just discussing, you know, what class you had earlier today or um, or the weather or the drive, you know, traffic, um, it might be hard to feel that sense of stimulation. And I like the idea of of transferring a substance, substantive uh, substance based risk um, to a um, conversation uh, or an interaction based risk, um, by which I don't mean you should. <laughs> insult your conversation partner, right, right, like that, right. but rather maybe be more willing to talk about things that are reveal who you are or um, are seem a little scary to you, or maybe ask questions and really get to know the person in front of you. Right. Or as Larry David would like to say, elevate small talk to medium talk. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly. if these are, I don't know if these are uh, evidence-based practices by any means, but it was, oh, just, something, absolutely. But yeah. it was just something I was curious about. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, one more question on, on this kind of general, you know, kind of uh, impact kind of thread that we've been having as people relate to, to drinking. Um, how should people kind of evaluate their own drinking behaviors. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of gray areas there between, you know, you know, I don't have a problem like because I drink like this, or I, you know, might have a problem because I drink like this, or you know, I, I used to, but, it, but or like I maybe I drink a lot, but only in like short bursts, and then I have periods of, and I'm just wondering, like, for folks who are out there who, you know, maybe aren't, you know, experts uh, such as yourself, um, and they're thinking, you know, just kind of about their own drinking. Um, you know, based on whatever kind of knowledge they have, how do you evaluate your own kind of drinking and, and make the conclusion like, I should really kind of reevaluate this or yeah. maybe change what I'm doing? Yeah. Um, so 
there are many answers to that question. Um, the simplest answer is um, if you are looking for the best health outcome or the outcome most likely, the behavior most likely to directly improve your physical health, um, no drinking. Mm. And um, that is, uh, you know, I think I mentioned that explicitly because that for a long time there was this idea that, um, you know, two glasses of red wine a day uh, it was going to, you know, get rid of your heart problems and was actually more beneficial than no alcohol. Right. And that is a wonderful idea. Um, but um, <laughs> I will say, I will say we have not had the, all the evidence that we have and the best evidence that we have suggests that no drinking. And this is based, by the way, on a, like on a, a data set comprising over 100,000 individuals. Okay. Um, so this is like big data and pretty reliable data suggesting that um, any drinking is more risky than no drinking. And moderate is worse than low and high is worse than moderate. Um, so there's your, you know, there's a simple answer. I guess another health-based answer, if you choose to not go with kind of this stark, um, uh, more, more bare bones solution here, um, is, uh, so NIAAA defines, which, so National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism currently, mm -hmm. um, defines low-risk drinking as anything less than um, seven drinks in a week for women or 14 drinks in a week for men, mm -hmm. or uh, less than um, uh, three drinks in a sitting for women and four drinks in a sitting for men. Got it, got it. So th that's one way to evaluate. Um, I will tell you one way not to evaluate, and this is really important. <laughs> Don't evaluate based on, am I drinking the same amount as the guys I hang out with? Because mm. those guys might have a problem and you may or may not have the same ability, you know, um, your family history of health problems, the body you were given, um, even how you respond to alcohol in the moment, it may be very different from those folks. Um, or even if it's the same, maybe they're actually really incurring some terrible um, uh, long-term health outcomes. It is amazing these kind of tiny subcultures we get ourselves into and how it is possible to view that the behavior of our immediate circle of 10 friends, and of course, I'm subject to this as well. We all are. Um, our immediate, you know, circle of ten friends is how all of humanity behaves, and is in fact a good idea. Um, so, uh, I think the way that it's most common to judge: Do you have a drinking problem? Is are you drinking more than the dudes around you, or than the people around you? Right. Um, and that is a very bad way to judge. Um, but I will say maybe if you're trying to move away from just your numbers, um, I think it's a good plan to, you know, I think anchoring yourself in those general norms and numbers, I would say it's a good plan to um, uh, pay attention to your body. Hmm. Um, and that sounds cliched, but it's very hard to do when you're intoxicated and even in intoxicated <laughs> environments, like, you know, right, when there's right. a, but you know, the pounding of the bass and the chattering of the, you know, the clinking of the glasses, 20 people trying to talk to you at once, like it's a lot, you know, and right. really thinking like, 
uh, how do I feel right now is another, you know, I've, I've had these two drinks now. What is my body feeling like? Mm. Um, that's a good idea. And I think related to that, um, see if I think taking some breaks and for mm. some people, that's a dry January. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's like Monday to Thursday, they don't drink. Right. But a few things happen there. One is you learn, you learn to put some little rewards in place for yourself. You learn how to be happy, you know, have some happiness, have some excitement in your life without alcohol. Mm-hmm. But also, even in short periods, you can reset your tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, tolerance could, to alcohol can develop very quickly. Um, so if you if you go dry for four days and then you drink again, you might find that you feel the effects quicker. And then it, it's a kind of um, it's it's a realization about um, how alcohol affects you and how much you might have been drinking before. Wow, that's a, I love that that um, last piece of advice, especially um, as it kind of can be one of those things that maybe not only can reset you, but also offer a little perspective. I I definitely feel this way where I get too wrapped up and maybe we all kind of feel this way sometimes, I'm sure. We get kind of wrapped up in what we're doing and we just kind of go on, you know, autopilot and default and having a a break. One of the things that I think is actually really helpful uh, about something like dry January is that it gives people an opportunity to, to pause and go, let me see what it's like the other way. Yes. Let me live that for a moment, and then then I'll have a better ability to compare kind of how I have been to to what I'm kind of doing now. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, I wanted to ask one more thing too about family history, and about you know it, it, I don't know if, like how much time we have um, to to unpack this this whole thing, but I just wonder about like. What should people know about family history? I, I come from a family where, where drinking was a thing that you did uh, and you did often. Yeah. And I, I just wonder, like, for other folks, um, uh, you know, what should they know about family history and, and drinking and how it affects them and their behavior? And are, are there certain things they should keep in mind as they um, as they go about their lives? Yes, I think there's a few important points there. One is if your parents are alcoholics, you are not doomed. You can make your own decisions. Um, There are many, you know, um, genes, of course, as we know, do not determine your life. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, it is really something to watch in yourself because you will be at some number of times greater risk of alcohol. And the exact estimates there can vary from three times to seven times greater risk than the average person if you have an immediate first degree relative who has uh, alcohol use disorder. Three to seven. Yeah, yeah. so it can be, yeah, depending on your specific characteristics. And one thing in particular that past research has suggested is that Um, tolerance in children of alcoholics is much higher. Mm. So you're the, how drunk you feel based on, for example, a single drink um, is your tolerance is higher, which it means how drunk you feel after a single drink is much lower Mm. in children Mm. of alcoholics. Right. And what is, what is really important for folks to remember about tolerance, and this relates to your question of, of, um, of family history, but um, it, it is kind of, it, it, in, in how we talk about it in society has the opposite um, 
it's it is viewed in society as a good thing, almost as a protective thing. Like, oh, Paul over there, he had 10 shots, but look, he's doing fine. He's steady. Like, you know, good old Paul, he's fine. He doesn't have a problem. Um, versus, you know, poor, you know, whatever. Rodrigo over here had, um, you know, two drinks and he's under the table. We really worry about Rodrigo, you know? Mm, mm. Actually, you should not worry about Rodrigo probably. If, if, if you uh, are considering just the tolerance, uh, you should right. not worry about the guy under the table and you should worry about the guy who just had 10 shots and is totally fine. And oh. I think that is it, it is very related to family history of alcoholism. So children of alcoholics tend to have much higher tolerances for alcohol. And that is it is it is a, a risky business. It, it imbues the sense of invulnerability of mm. I can just keep throwing them back. I think society kind of compounds that sense. Mm. Um, so if you can hold your liquor, um, tr try not to <laughs> <laughs> try dropping your liquor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. That's great. That's great advice. Um, uh, and I, yeah, that's a, a really useful lens. Hmm. I never thought about that before, but yeah, you're right. There's, there's an irony there that it actually might be the opposite way that you're thinking about it. Yes, huh. absolutely. Huh. Um, this is the part where uh, of, of the podcast where I usually like to ask people um, about the way in which their research um, kind of relates to society, um, and and what ways they wish that it were it were different. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, if you, Catherine, could kind of wave a wand and say, you know, I think that we need to change this in order to start kind of addressing solve these problems, addressing or solving some of these problems with the understanding that you don't have to be totally evidence-based here. Um, these could be our, our even, you know, unproven kind of uh, theories about what might be a good way or a good direction uh, to go. Um, how would you like to see, and let's kind of, if we can, I know I focus on the U.S. a little bit, but um, how would you kind of change the way in which people kind of um, institute institutionally, um, the way in which our society it's, is kind of structured, be it through organizations or institutions and how they kind of relate to people, what would you kind of change to make things better for folks, if you could? I think, um, I think a few things. I think, um, I, you know, some of which I've, I've kind of touched on earlier. Um, I think I would I would I would maintain our focus on the individual because I do think individual treatment can be helpful and in even individual prevention efforts. But at the same time, you know, people are made by who they are and they're made by where they are, too. And I would really think about the context that we put people in um, rather than just um, the people they ultimately become. And, you know, if we can use the adage of walk a mile in another's shoes, of I've seen many, many people, um, I've seen many folks who struggle with addiction over the years, in ranging from uh, ranging from heroin to um, to crack to methamphetamine to alcohol. And I would say with the majority of these folks, I have felt that should I have walked a few steps in their circumstances, I might have easily ended up in their shoes. And in some cases, definitely. Mm. So rather than, and I think that relates to kind of thinking of why, you know, 
of the logic of why do people do what they do? Yes, uh, yes, addiction can lead people to behave in illogical, irrational, sometimes inhumane ways, but often how they got there was actually through a series of choices that did make sense in the context they found themselves in. And if we can do more, both, and I think that informs two things I would change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> One is to, in terms of the level at which we intervene. And I do hope we can, I, I don't think there's an easy answer. As I said, I certainly didn't have an easy answer. You know, what spaces do we set up? How do we change right. things system at a system level? But I mean, I'd imagine one of it would be like, you know, address poverty, address mm. racism, address mm. how all of that is intertwined with addiction. Um, so um, think about the spaces that we put people in, what other in- joy, what other opportunities to control and predict the environments they find themselves in, what other opportunities to belong they might have, like just these fundamental human needs, Mm. um, and think how we can create a context or even just take a teeny tiny little shuffling step towards creating a context that allows them that in the absence of substances. Um, So I think it speaks to a potentially difficult but real concrete invention or uh, intervention, but I also think it speaks to um, how, uh, how we think about people and and this notion of the addict as the other, as, as the one over there who's who's a little frightening, who's different than me, that who's other than me, and um, and in whom I if I feel anything positive towards, it's kind of a sense of pity. Um, and I really want to um, just because of somebody externalizes their their struggles just because somebody seeks solace um, doesn't mean that there's 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 nothing to judge there. This is a fantastic answer. Thank you. Um, maybe one final question if I if I have yes. if we have a little time. Um, what makes you most hopeful? Like, are there are there things that, um, you know, in, in thinking about. Uh, alcohol and the way it relates to people are there is, is it like research going on or institutional changes or cultural changes something do you see something happening that really kind of gives you hope and and what is that thing that is a great question well i do see um that there are efforts in a variety of different domains um there have been efforts to create um spaces uh, to to create a kind of a sober culture mm. um and usually it's in the intervention realm rather than in the prevention realm um but you really do see and these tend to be grassroots efforts things like na and aa which really do address those basic needs of people um address the fact that our society um is spins around often seems to spin around an alcohol core um, and creates it really creates a radical alternative to that and a radical kind of space-based alternative to that so um i think that's what piece you know i will say also um you know this is on a much more minor level but all those dry bars that are coming out and um oh yeah i i actually haven't i've i've tried like the dry the um uh, the fake booze, um, but I haven't tried the dry bars yet. And I think those in particular could be really important. Like 
Um, I think, yeah, um, providing really delicious, exciting, non-alcoholic mm. beverages is something that we need to up our game on oh, um, at, the, at the micro level in our university and also at the macro level. Um, and I think those bars are, yeah, and they also provide that community space, which, right. which bars do. Right. It also kind of, it kind of reminds me of um, the Impossible Burger and Impossible Meat, right? So um, my understanding is that, you know, they were like, let's try to create and actually for a lot of environmental reasons to kind of reduce the amount of red meat that's um, uh, raised and, and consumed. Let's try to create a meat that is that's just as good as the real. And they've been making great strides at Impossible Meat. Oh, I, I, Yeah. I'm, I, I, I eat meat with ethical qualms. Um, and I really, I think it's delicious, impossible right. and beyond. Yeah, no, they, you're right. They provide us with inspiration. Right. Yeah. So that would be a really cool thing if there was, if there was like a way to create the same kind of, you know, experience in terms of going out and getting it, you know, a, a, a literal drink that you, you know, drink, um, but that actually didn't contain alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, technology. And maybe that will be our, like, maybe if we just go with the sort of um, the pure gustatory experience of it, maybe our in, in, um, evolving technology can help us there. Mm, that would be thrilling indeed. Well, uh, Catherine, I want to thank you so much for coming out um, and, and talking with me on, on the podcast today. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, are there any uh, final parting thoughts or things that you would like to, to chat before we take off? No. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you.